morning. My name's Brad, uh, and, I, and I get to live here and be part of what God is doing here, which is such a thrill for me. Uh, and so, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to, to get to serve a little bit this morning in talking about Jesus and about the book of Hebrews. And uh, really excited this book. Uh, for me personally, uh, I love, and I'll share a few snapshots from my life in a second, but this morning we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Uh, So you can turn there in your Bibles or your phones or your iPads or however you're connecting to God's Word. Also, if you want a Bible, you can talk to us and we'll make sure that you get one if you don't have a Bible. Uh, Because Bibles in print are kind of fun. Uh, This is just a little side note uh, about my own uh, neurosis. Uh, I believe there'll come a day when all of our technology that we have will not exist anymore. Like, there will be some sort of post-apocalyptic scenario in which the people that have actual books will be the people in power. And so that's, that's my uh, investment in my own, like, 401k as I, I purchase paper books, uh, unless I don't think that they're very good, and then I'll get them, you know, on Kindle. Uh, so if you want a physical Bible, uh, that'd be pretty cool. Actually, just really dorky, like back in the day, uh, in the first several centuries, uh, the elders who were called to be protectors of the doctrine, do you, does people know that from when we've taught on elders here before? And part of their job was to literally hold the scrolls, like the scroll of Isaiah, uh, the scrolls of the Old Testament, to actually keep those documents and protect them with their very lives. So anyway, if you want a Bible, let me know, and uh, we'll get you one. Uh, One quick announcement I forgot. We're not going to gather on February 11th. There will not be a gathering here in this place. Uh, Instead, what we're doing is we're taking uh, all the missional community leaders and co-leaders off for a two-day retreat where we can just sort of invest in them, create space for prayer, uh, encouragement, fellowship with other leaders, uh, because we believe that's such a primary way in which we get to live out the gospel in our city, and our leaders uh, bear so much responsibility in that, we actually want to take a weekend and pour solely into them. And so if you're going to be here, you can offer to take care of kiddos of your missional community leaders. You can also you know, throw a brunch for that coworker, that friend that you have. You can be creative and figure out what to do on a Sunday morning. It will be the week after football has ceased to exist. So that's why we did it, because Tripp's the only one that watches football in our church. So uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is far more excellent than ours. This book is the least uh, sort of historical knowledge we have about any book in the New Testament. It's actually the book of Hebrews. Uh, If anyone comes to you and says, I know who wrote the book of Hebrews, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, Nobody knows. 
uh, I can say with tons of confidence the Apostle Paul did not write the book of Hebrews. After that, who really knows? Uh, we don't know where it was written. Like, there's no like story of, yeah, the person wrote this, they were trapped in a prison, they were on an island, uh, they were living at large in a kingdom somewhere. We have no idea what, where it was written. And we really don't even know where it was written to. All we really know is the type of people it was written to. Uh, people uh, in chapter 10, we find out, who are beginning to experience persecution. The type of persecution where uh, there's the society or the city they lived in was mocking them for their faith, and also where they were at risk of seeing their, their possessions taken from them, being put uh, in prison. Not like lions and stuff like that, which will come later on, but they were beginning to experience what it means to be a people of God in a city that rejects God himself. Uh, they were a group of people, too, we know, that were deeply uh, discouraged and confused about life, about following Jesus. We know they were likely living in a city somewhere, a major cosmopolitan place. Many people suspect it was the city of Rome, mostly because the leaders of the Church of Rome in the following centuries quote this book more than any other sort of city. Uh, and so it's likely uh, a group of people in a city like Rome who were probably raised to be Jewish, but also to be Hellenistic, to be Greek and Roman citizens that had uh, professions that were important, that had roles in society that were meaningful, but also had this Jewish heritage where they knew all about the festivals, they probably memorized lots of the Bible, and yet they came to believe and came to know that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And then they began to follow Jesus, they began to experience the community of faith, uh, they began to love neighbors really well, they probably experienced some sort of growth in Jesus, yet, as life continues, they begin to wonder, man, is this faith really worth enduring for? Uh, is, is this Christian life all that meaningful and worthwhile? Uh, as more and more the people around me begin to criticize us, should we just stop? as the, the sort of ethic that it's portrayed of loving our neighbor as ourselves seems a bit too much. Or keeping ourselves and pursuing holiness uh, as we love God and, and try to, to, to love Him back, we are finding that to be far different uh, than everyone around us. And maybe we should just stop. Uh, the reason the book of Hebrews is so powerful and continues and was such a, a big piece in the canon of the New Testament is because it speaks to uh, moments that every Christian will experience. Moments of doubt, discouragement, disheartenedness. And it's, a, and it's a book, really it's a written sermon to people like us. Uh, I uh, have just a few stories. I want to be more vulnerable in 2018 with you guys. Uh, of how I needed to hear this book over and over again. Uh, in the book, in uh, my childhood, when I was 10 years old, we moved to a foreign country, Lisbon, Portugal. I probably talk about that too much, but it was really hard. As we moved, people came and told us, they said, hey, you're doing this big thing for God, and he's going to bless you. Uh, he's going to take care of you. Your life's going to be better because you're doing this. Uh, people told me that, you know, up front in churches. Now, that was back in the day when you'd have missionaries come and visit and uh, you had to stand up front and like have a line full of people walking by and kissing your cheeks that you didn't even know. And they would say that to me. You're going to be blessed because you're doing this big thing. 
for God. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Uh, but then we got there, and it was actually pretty uh, horrific in many ways. Uh, my parents did not get along at all. My mom struggled to learn the language. We struggled to learn the language. Uh, we, uh, my dad was gone a lot doing his ministry stuff of like why he came to be there. Our schooling was a complete mess. I went to like four schools in two years. Uh, it was really terrible, and I can remember very vividly saying to God and writing it in my bunk bed, I hate you, you big liar. If this is what the Christian life is, you do these hard things for God, and then he's supposed to like pay it forward. He's really bad at paying it forward. And I just don't know if I want to continue on this whole charade of following Jesus. Uh, later, I went to a very religious high school. Uh, the sort of high school where you were, guys weren't allowed to wear like shorts. I mean, that's kind of... I mean, I understand. Girls can't wear shorts. But like guys, we weren't even allowed to wear shorts. Uh, we couldn't have hair that like passed our ears. We couldn't have CDs on campus that had drums on the CDs, which I thought was really funny on like so many levels. Uh, like, where is the drum on this disc? Anyway, uh, but it was filled with tons of rules. And I, and I began to, Monday through Friday, walk through this Christian doctrination in which they said, to have fun and to enjoy things and to have any sort of pleasure or joy is not Christian. What you really need to do is do, do insanely difficult things and prove to everyone around here that you're good enough. Uh, later, I went to college, uh, and I began to learn from sciences and literature and history. Even in this Christian school, I began to wonder, man, what if all of this is just a big joke? Like, what if there are a bunch of people 2,000 years ago began writing these stories about Jesus, and now I'm called to live this life, and they were just making it up? Uh, my wife and I felt like... Uh, God was calling us and leading us to move to Portland, Oregon, which is a beautiful place. Uh, and that was about 10 years ago. And when we moved, we were filled with tons of like energy and excitement. Like We thought God was going to do an amazing miracle. We couldn't wait to see God restore and revive this city. Uh, I got there. I lost my job about three months into it. And then it was in uh, 2009, in which having an international business degree... And being quite good at it, back, I used to be, uh, not anymore. Uh, I would walk around on the streets of our neighborhood asking if I could be a busboy or a waiter, and they would tell me I'm not qualified. Uh, we paid for food by me selling those books uh, at a used bookstore and taking money, and that's, that's how we bought beans and rice. And I can remember the agony of month and month trying to just get enough funds to pay for rent and those other things, crying out to God, why did you bring us into this desert just to die? And there weren't any cool stories to turn to in that season of, yeah, it's really hard, but look at like so-and-so. They're like learning about Jesus. There was no one learning about Jesus around us, at least it felt like. And we thought, did he, why would... Why would following Jesus be worth it if, if this is what we have to do. About five years into our marriage, we were confronted with the reality that 
while we had talked about the redemption and restoration and forgiveness of Jesus all the time, and at this point people around us were beginning to believe and experience that in Portland, and we'd seen lots of communities started, we realized that within our own marriage, that forgiveness, redemption, restoration was not available. That was not how we lived. Uh, that our marriage was essentially this big joke. And as we looked into what it would take to actually find that sort of healing and restoration in our lives, we thought, man, is this really worth it? Does Jesus make us the kind of people that can love another person? Does the love of Jesus alone, uh, does his work alone enable us to even be married at all? Uh, We also, uh, through this... uh, Season two, we experienced the mess of Christian community, where we had people come and sit down on our living room uh, and our couches in our living room and just yell at us for messing up their lives and for not doing enough. Uh, We had uh, people that would angrily leave and never want anything to do with us again uh, because we had done things like, hey, what if we all helped clean up after the meal? And we wondered, does Jesus really like have this whole church thing under control? Because it doesn't seem like it in this stuff. The last snapshot, we began really loving and caring for our neighbors. They became our best friends on this little street in, Divi- in uh, Portland. And, and we shared tons of meals and daily encounters and friendships, and it was blossoming. And we began to be confronted with this silent thought of, but they don't really need anything. Like, they're the ones that keep giving us incredible gift cards to Target so that we can, you know, buy stuff for our kids. What do we actually have to offer them? Much more. They're pretty nice people. And as we're walking through all this marriage stuff, they don't have that marriage stuff. I mean, do they really need Jesus? Because they look like they're doing pretty good. And all the while, through all of these stories, there were moments where we thought, like the people of Hebrew that this book is written to, thought, maybe we should just fade into the background and become like the people around us. Their lives seem to be pretty good. They just get up, go to work, do whatever they want to do, They're not trying to live in Christian community. Maybe we should just do what they do and and return to our old former lives. Because this life is just hard. Right? And in each of these moments, though, what I just read is like a flood of water to our souls because he says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. The the Christian faith is founded on this one step. There's many, many steps to the logic. But one of the very first things is God spoke. God spoke the world into existence. You know, in the beginning was the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And then there was light, right? That, that, that God could have created a world and just let us live in darkness and in squander and that every war that we saw was just another opportunity for us to take more land and to be more safe or to protect ourselves from people that wanted to do that. 
that God could have just left the world to be in darkness and void and chaos. That your story could just be whatever you see and whatever you touch is the reality. So just make do with what's best. But God spoke. The first lines affirm just the central idea that God's voice is coming into the world, that He's revealing Himself. That He's not left us to be desperate and killing one another, but God has actually shifted and transformed the world simply by His own voice and His own revelation. That He didn't leave us to wonder what life is about, but He says to us very clearly and many times and many ways, this is what life is supposed to be like. You're supposed to live a life united with me, living in joy and grace and mercy with your Creator and with one another. That's what you were created to be. And he says it many times and in many ways. In the past, the, the writer here is referring to the fact that, that God spoke through incredible storms or powerful mercy or uh, intense judgment. God spoke uh, through prophets and through priests. He spoke through poets and songwriters. He spoke in so many ways. Even a donkey gets to speak on behalf of God. And, and all the while, each of these people speaking, each of these occurrences speaking, even a cloud itself is all talking about and attributing different pieces of God's presence, His power, His mercy, His grace, His love, His glory. All of them are speaking to that. But then the writer says, but in these last days, in our moment, God has spoken to us by Jesus. And Jesus isn't a message or a messenger He is Himself the embodiment of God. He isn't offering part of what God wants. He isn't offering part of what God is doing in the world. He is the final and complete Word. Uh, Another way to imagine this is that the writer is saying, uh, all along there's been a story of redemption and restoration. And, And there's been all these characters that have spoken to it. They've even spoken on behalf of God. But that story of God revealing His uh, saving grace stops. That progress stops with Jesus, and it's just complete in Jesus. That Jesus is the final word, the final complete message. Nobody has to come after Jesus and say, okay, so He said some stuff, let me tell you some more. Like, my job as someone who gets to preach, is to just always talk about what Jesus did and said and what He's really like. Anybody who does more than that when they're preaching is, is kind of like confused. Jesus comes and He reveals who God is, what He does, and what He wants, and it's complete in Jesus. He's the last spokesman. And He wasn't a servant of God, like all the prophets before. He is God Himself. He's not speaking on behalf of anyone. He's speaking for Himself. Your story, my story, is all bent towards finding a completion and an understanding in Jesus. 
And I think in, in all the trials and all the struggles and the hard times and the good times, that's one of the main questions that we often have is, what is God saying here? So I want to just kind of ask us, uh, where you guys get to share, what are some areas of your life in which you want God to speak? What situation or mess are you sitting here even this morning as I'm talking about how God spoke completely wondering, but what about this part of my life? Can we be vulnerable and and share some of that? I'd like God to speak into my job. God to speak into your job. Sorry, everyone keep thinking of yours, but also think, let's just practice something here. What has God said, what has Jesus done or said or spoken for our brother here, Casey, longing for some security or assurance? What has Jesus already said about Casey's life and his work? Go for it, Ashley. Yeah, Jesus said he's already, or Ashley said, that Jesus has said that he is the solid rock that you get to stand on. Yeah, and that, that you have complete assurance. I've worked with about seven startups now, and I'm starting to build my own. Um, security is inclusion. Uh, anything other than the work. It's just not that. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, Jesus stands up as the complete message, and he says, when they're asking him about who to pay taxes to, and he's like, give me a coin, and he points whose face is on it, oh, Caesar's face, we'll give Caesar his, his face. Um, he stands and he says that as, I'm actually Lord of everything, I don't need coins, right? What I, the sort of security and safety I'm giving you is not fashioned with coins, or coffers, right? Anyone else want to share where they want to see Jesus speaking in their lives? Yeah, Ali. Um, Sorry. I, I would like to speak to our friends who have left the faith, hmm. or who are doubting. Yeah. I would very much like to speak to that immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she said, for anyone who didn't hear, uh, that she would love for Jesus to speak into the people that have left the faith, that for God to speak into that situation. 
people that have, yeah, neglected loving the community and following Jesus. What does Jesus say there in his life? that Jesus loves those people so deeply. So much more than you could imagine or you could, you know, I think often, and I thought that with my friends in Portland, like, I wish Jesus just loved them as much as I love them. You know. And yet, yeah, Jesus is the one saying, God so abundantly loves the world that, that he sent his only son to pursue them, like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go pursue the one that got away, or the person that unturns their house in search of a missing coin. Uh, And that Jesus is doing more in pursuit of you than you can know. And that's true for everyone else. Yeah. Huh? You add, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. That's awesome. How about you over here? You raise your hand multiple times. Mm-hmm. And you seek a lot of uh, secular advice about finding the money in the world. 
Yeah, he said, what do I do with my money uh, that I do have? How do I invest that and like, not just store it up for myself, but what does God actually want me to do with all of these possessions in a way that cares for my own family, but also is faithful to Jesus, which both is faithful to Jesus, right? Yeah, go for it, Jessica. Hmm. And I would speak to him about to others about him. I would speak about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Asking for Jesus to to give you clarity on how to even talk to him and how to talk about him to others. Yeah. Which Jesus yeah says that he is, you know, our advocate between God. And we'll learn even in Hebrews that He's the one that's torn the veil and given us and He ushers us into the presence of God and His glory and He and, as a blameless person. Yeah. Speaking on, taking our mumbling and our lame prayers and making them like angelic songs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this last week I was asked to pray for people at different times at this retreat of pastors and leaders. And every time it was like, everything I'm about to pray is so stupid, even in my own ear. And it's like, and I get this caught up of like, I, I hope I pray a really good prayer that helps them believe. Uh, I hope I give them a good sermon. And then it's like, I had to over and over again be like, Jesus, make, make whatever comes to my mouth a good prayer for them. Yeah. You want to go, Josh? You can be the last. into the, your own internal standards and how to meet them. Hmm. I think this next part actually fits into that. I'm just going to transition right there. Because he, he says this, that, uh, and this is actually, it's cool, I'll just throw this out there. The, the writer of Hebrews we know is the most gifted writer in Greek in all the New Testament. And uh, the writer actually alliterates all of these words and they all start with P's in Greek Uh, but then it leads up to this point where the main phrase he says God has actually spoken to us by his son and then he says whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Uh, what What has Jesus spoken? What is His purpose? What is He all about? He simply quickly moves on to the very uh, character and nature of Jesus. That he, as a spokesperson, it's not so much all the stuff that he says, which is really good, but it's about who he is. Like who his actual identity is. We often lose sight of uh, everything in our lives when we lose sight of the very nature of Jesus. Often those, those spotlights that I, or highlights or lowlights of my own life that I shared, uh, in each moment that was so difficult and hard and struggling to even believe, was all moments when I thought Jesus was like my buddy. Like Jesus was just like a friend, a sidekick. Uh, that Jesus was a tool to use. Or Jesus was a list of rules. Or Jesus was a few bullet points on a track somewhere. But what the, the writer here is saying is Jesus uh, is the one that God has spoken, us, spoken to us through, and He is something. Not He says something. Which is pretty odd. But He says, He's the one that He's appointed as the heir of all things. That, that Jesus has been appointed and anointed to receive all things. Uh, my parents were here a few last week, and they're at that awkward point of life where they're like not about to die on any stretch of the imagination, but they're thinking about dying all the time. Uh, there's, I guess, in America, there's this 20-year stretch that's just really strange, uh, where they're like, "Well, what are we going to do with their money?" And they're they're talking about their uh, really strange like inheritance plan, and there's like all these lawyers, and it's very confusing. But in the end, it's like, wow, for me, like what they're talking about that I will inherit is like so amazing. Like I could buy a house or something like that. What, what we're talking about with Jesus is he's the son that inherit, inherits everything. That everything will belong to him. He's been appointed, he's been named the one heir of the world. What he says next, though, is fascinating because it's, he says, through whom also he created the world. Jesus' inheritance is the same thing that he created. The full scope of the universe he created. That, that it was through the, the Son that everything came into being and came to exist. That's all Jesus. So he is the one that gets everything in the end. He's also the one that made everything in the beginning. That the identity of Jesus is not someone who who came onto the scenes in humanity 2,000 years ago and spoke a lot and died a martyrdom death and then somehow he miraculously rose again. And so he's this guy that has for us offered lots of hope. He's actually saying, no, he's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He was God with us. God for us. That he was born, uh, lived a life, had siblings, he taught, he was baptized, he did all of these miracles, not as a really good guy, but as God himself. Which he continues to say that. He says, he's the radiance of the glory of God. 
that uh, Jesus is to God like the rays of sun that powerfully change the temperature of our planet uh, to the sun. That, that if, if God is the sun itself, S-U-N, uh, soul, uh, that Jesus is that sort of radiant glow from the sun. That, that, that it becomes difficult to distinguish, but it has that sort of imprint on our lives. That Jesus walked around as the very radiance of God's glory. All of His healing of others, all of His kind words, all of His looking into the eyes of women and men and children was all the radiance of God's glory. And then He says, and He is the exact imprint of His nature. Uh, this word imprint uh, is mostly used in Koine Greek for people that have stamps. So I'm sure in some of your wedding invitations you got all cool and you like made a stamp and a seal and then that you had some wax and you like pressed it, right? Anyone do that? Sweet. <laughs> I, well, that's not surprising. Your wedding had to have been the classiest of all of our weddings. Moving right <laughs> But the seal, uh, the metal seal and the wax seal become one. And they're the same thing. To have somebody seal on wax or to have the emperor or the king or the governor uh, seal that with his ring uh, made the seal itself the very voice of the king, the emperor, the owner, the governor. And here he's saying Jesus is the exact imprint of the very nature of of God. That nothing Jesus does in his entire life or in his death or in his resurrection is outside of the very nature of God. Also, everything that we see in the nature of Jesus, all of his love, his grace, his mercy, is completely the imprint of God's very character. That Jesus doesn't withhold any aspect of who God is but it's on full display. It's been made known to us. And he says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Sorry. And then he says something uh, fantastic. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification of sins implies that uh, he had to do something for the ugliness of sin. Uh, Right now you can probably tell that my body is filled with mucus. Uh, You can tell. Uh, It started in Canada and it was all like up here. And it was just, <coughs> excuse me, always coming out. Now it's like in my chest. And I imagine, even as I lay there trying to fall asleep each night, that I just have like, if I could see the inside of my, my body, there's just this growing green thing in every cavity, every organ of my body. And it's just encompassing the whole thing. And every now and then it leaks out. And... <laughs> my ears and my nose and my throat and it's disgusting, right? 
Uh, my son Truman, who's not here, it's like leaking out of his eyes right now. <laughs> you got some of that. Wait. <laughs> when, when, uh, often I think we, we try to imagine sin as something, sort of this invisible aspect within us. But really it's like that sort of hostile takeover within our bodies, just like mucus. And our bodies are trying to reject it, but they don't reject it very well. And all along, if there was an invisible, uh, if we could look on the insides of our hearts and our souls and our bodies, it's just overcome with this stain and marred humanity. That as we walk around, just like you do when you have a cold or, or whatever I have, you're fully aware that you are not right and you're not well. And that something somewhere will have to come and remove all of the mucus, all of the sin, or as Isaiah says, remove the dross out of our very souls and out of our lives. And he says here the phrase, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He's saying... Jesus was not only the very picture of God, the imprint of God, displaying his exact nature. He doesn't just speak for God. But what he does is purify humanity from sin. That he's, he's turned the story from being a story about sin and brokenness and death, and he's made it one about a holy people, a, a chosen uh, community, He's, he's talking about a, a humanity in which is, does not walk in sickness and in death, but walks in pure holiness. That, that what God has been doing in our lives is not just uh, helping us know more about God, but He's changing our very souls. And He, said, and it, and he implies here that He was victorious in it. Uh, Jesus came, He purified our souls. He, he, he was the one who made purification for sin. He was the sacrifice. His death was for our sins, and He's made us holy. And now, He sits at the right hand of God, raised to life in all authority and in all power, becoming way more superior than any sort of angel, because the name that He's inherited is more excellent than theirs. His identity, this, this word, shapes you. It informs you. It recreates you. And He is the one that is in, char- in charge of everything. It's often hard to look back at our stories and reimagine them. Often what we do, though, is we have someone in our lives that narrates our stories for us. Uh, it was actually when my mom was here, it was funny, we, she realized that the story she tells for my life is that I became a Christian when I was six years old. Uh, the story that I have for my life is I became a Christian when I was 13. Uh, Jesus re-narrates our stories, though, for us. Uh, I shared how when I was a kid, we moved to Portugal, and I was so angry and upset with God. But then on a night in uh, Switzerland, I began to actually hear the voice of Jesus in my, inside of myself, not like some audible thing of, I love you, period. There is no, if you do this, then you get blessed. Uh, 
what, I, what, what God says and God will say through the book of Hebrews is, you're loved, period, that is the blessing. Being with God, having Christ redeem and purify your soul is the blessing. And, you've been, and that's all of the blessing. Not, you do good stuff for God and then you get like cool toys. When uh, in those season of high school, uh, God transformed my life from thinking about myself and thinking about how wrong these people are for following these rules and how unfun it is to not play music with drums. But it began to like shift my view towards the beauty of the church, that God would die for people like my principal and my teachers. People that would take the gospel and be so far off, yet God would say, I lavish my love on them. And then to look at my own life and say, wow, how far have I come from loving God Himself? And He loves me the same way He loves my teachers and even the most religious of people. Because if Jesus came into the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, We've only sort of continued that strand. And he loved the Pharisees. He loves me. Or uh, when we look at to what was happening in the mess of our marriage, we say how wonderful and beautiful that God interrupted our lives by giving us each other so that he can make us holy. That he would confront us with not being able to atone for the sins of one another. And that we would have to look to Jesus to be the atonement for our own mess. Or as we look to uh, our own neighbors that we loved and we thought, well, they're really good and they're really rich and they have everything that they need. Jesus is actually saying, but they have no gateway or access to the Holy One of God. They have no opportunity to know lasting joy. They just know how to have possessions and find happiness in those possessions. So I want to call us to respond to these first lines of Hebrews. Uh, from now on, we'll, we'll dive into bigger chunks, and I hope that we devour this book. Like, read it. There'll be readings every day, uh, and Psalms too, but that we would devour this book, that we would read it, that we'd study it, that we'd ask of it tons of questions, that we would pray for God to help us understand its impact in our own lives. But as we do, I just want us to, to respond this morning to just these first verses. Um, maybe for you, uh, you're in this place of wondering if uh, Jesus is worth it like, to begin. Like, should I follow Jesus step one? And it always begins with acknowledging and receiving Jesus as the Holy One of God. The exact imprint of His nature. The full and complete sacrifice. The one who can uh, speak on your behalf to the Father. The one that gives hope and love and faith. And so, uh, maybe for you, today marks the day of beginning that path towards this difficult life of following and loving and receiving the grace of Jesus. For others of us, we find ourselves in like one of those snapshots where life is just really hard and the world is on fire. Um, and for you, it's can you behold Jesus? 
Can you look to him as the very glory of God, the one to fix your eyes onto, the one that as you look to Jesus, all the other problems seem to be insignificant? Which is uh, one of the main places I've landed in my life. I could lose all my money, which is not that much. I could lose my health. Uh, I could lose my family. I could lose uh, my profession. I could lose my giftings. Uh, I could lose the use of my hand. And I could be alive for like 60 more years having lost everything. And yet it would be a momentary blip on my eternal existence where I get to walk and exist with God for all eternity, worshiping Jesus as the one who raised my life. Can we behold Jesus with that sort of focus that all the other stuff in life is just a blip on the radar? For us, we also can respond through proclaiming and speaking. This could very well be the substance of what people around us need to hear. That when we're, like, to go to a friend, to go to a neighbor and say, just so you know, whenever I'm, like, talking about what Jesus does for me and how Jesus is really good, I'm not talking about him like he's, like, a fun guy to be around and you should have Jesus be a fun guy around. I want you to know, just by the way, I think I'm talking about the very imprint of God, the creator of the universe, the majesty and glory of God. Whenever I say Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. And maybe we can proclaim that with joy to one another. That he is the exact imprint of Jesus, of God. Let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this book. I thank you for this uh, moment in our lives and the history of our church that we get to all be on this, this, the literal same page, studying and learning. I pray that your spirit would speak and uh, help us understand and that you would grow and that you would birth patience and kindness and goodness and self-control in us, that your spirit would transform our hearts through this. Because uh, I know these preachings don't do that, uh, but it's you who, who woos our hearts that makes us uh, understand your wonderful nature. I pray that we would uh, fix our eyes on what you're like. That we'd be ever curious about how you uphold the universe. I pray that you would humble us in this next season. Uh, that we would have uh, a deep affection for you as the one who's God and not ourselves. I pray for repentance in us as we read these story, uh, this scripture. I pray that we would turn away from worshiping other things and behold uh, your grace and your wonder. Um, I pray that all the confusing parts would be made clear and that you'd give us a lasting endurance, that we would not forsake gathering together, loving neighbors together, uh, that you would do the work that we long to see in our own city, that it would be transformed with this knowledge of you, and that this city would look like the exact imprint of your nature and the radiance of your glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Fill our hearts, heal our bodies. 
Amen.